All right, well, we have something um, pretty unique and important that we need to kind of talk about and address this morning. So I'm going to invite up Mr. Rob Willoughby. Him and his crew of people have some important stuff they need to share with you guys. So give Rob and Brendan your attention. Oh, and Brittany, sorry. <laughs> oh, you're up here, Brittany? Oh, okay. And there's a lot of work that's been put into that. So thank you, Brendan and Rob and Brittany. And I think there's other people that have helped. So thank you, guys. All right. Well, this morning, whew, that's heavy to follow that. All right, shifting gears now. This morning um, is pretty exciting for me because I have the opportunity to set up uh, what we're going to be focusing on over the next three to four months or so. Um, we recently wrapped up this past fall our sermon series over the I Am Statements of Jesus. In December, we wrapped up our Advent teachings. And so this morning, we're shifting gears and we're kicking off our new series over the book of Second Corinthians. And so one of the tasks that Bob gave me this morning is to lay out the foundation for you guys of this New Testament book um, and to give you an accurate glimpse into the ancient city of Corinth, its people, the author of this book, and why this letter was written. And so my hope um, is that today sets us all up to have a greater understanding of this particular book so that we can better grasp and apply God's words uh, to our lives. So right now, I want all of you guys to close your eyes. I'm going to do a little exercise here. Don't worry. You don't need to peek around. I'm not doing anything. You're not missing anything on the screens. Just close your eyes and listen closely to what I'm about to describe. Right now, I want you to imagine a city with breathtaking beauty. Think of the most beautiful place you've ever been. This Greek city was located on a narrow strip of land connecting two larger pieces of land with the beautiful sea touching both the east and the west. Because of its location, it was a prominent crossroads for commerce and travel, making it a wealthy and a luxurious place to live for many of its inhabitants. This city was under the authority of the Roman Empire and had a population of around 500,000. The citizens of this city were devoted to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, beauty, and pleasure. And they lived out their devotion well. They gave themselves over to lust, immorality, and drunkenness, some said the name of this city meant to practice fornication. An ancient proverb declared, not for every man is the voyage to this city. It could perhaps be compared to the red light district of modern day Amsterdam, where sex and pleasure run wild and are encouraged by all. This was the ancient city of Corinth. All right, you guys can open your eyes now. Take a moment to consider people in your life or maybe in your life before Christ who are just wicked, corrupt, and perverse. Maybe a neighbor fits that description for you. Maybe a family member falls into that category. Maybe you have some co-workers or some classmates who are just wicked people who are nothing but trouble. Now envision what it would be like for you to focus your time and energy on trying to reach those people with the gospel. Putting in your blood, sweat, and tears to those people in hopes that they would come to know 
Jesus. And this is exactly what Paul the Apostle found himself doing. It was to Corinth that God moved Paul to plant a church in this pagan city. One Bible scholar said from no other city could Paul have received more of an incentive to write of the sin of man. And from no other city in the world could he have seen more apt illustration of it. Paul first arrived in Corinth in the year A.D. 50 on his second missionary journey. He spent 18 months in Corinth building relationships, using his gift of tent making to financially support himself, and preaching the gospel at any available opportunity. He first focused on teaching specifically the Jews about Jesus, the Messiah, and then he shifted to focusing solely on preaching to the Gentiles, or the non-Jews. We know during his 18-month stay in Corinth, he struck up a very close and intimate friendship with a married couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. (laughs) Isn't that cute? They were also tent makers themselves. And they became heavily involved in Paul's missionary work within the city of Corinth. And it's important for us to know, this is interesting, that Paul's converts, the vast majority of them, they were not prominent members of society. They were not influential people at all. And many of them came from very humble backgrounds, from their former lives of sexual immorality and perversion and drunkenness. But, just like us, they had been forgiven and sanctified by the grace of Christ. So a couple years after Paul left Corinth, he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church that he had planted in the city. And 1 Corinthians could really just be summed up by the theme of Christian conduct. Christian conduct. And so he had received um, reports about just a lot of questions and doubts regarding sex and marriage and food. So in 1 Corinthians, he devotes a lot of his time just to addressing questions that were presented to him. Um, He also devoted a great deal of the letter to addressing reports of division and strife that were taking place within the church and its members. And throughout 1 Corinthians, you clearly see um, his grief and a holy anger with the Corinthians with some of just the sin that they were involved in and the ways that they were treating each other. All right. Hey, if you guys ever wanted a New Testament lesson, today's your day. All right. So if you're zoning out, we're, we're almost done. We're about to dive into Scripture for ourselves. Um, so now we come to the letter, Paul's letter, that we're going to spend the next three months or so diving into and dissecting, 2 Corinthians. And prior to writing this letter, Paul had received word that many of the Christians in Corinth were starting to question and really just doubt his authority. Who is this Paul guy? Who does he really think he is? So a good chunk of 2 Corinthians is devoted to Paul just defending himself and defending his authority as an apostle of Christ. And he also takes some time throughout this letter from the first letter he sent to celebrate uh, the repentance of many of the Corinthians from just their former ways of sin that he received word of. Um, so it's a kind of a combo of celebrating the repentance, but yet also defending his authority in Christ. And so for our purposes today, we're going to start in chapter 3 of this book. 
Because the first two chapters, really, to sum it up, he just takes a little bit of time and praises God. And then he goes into this long dialogue of why he didn't visit the church again on a specific occasion. So we're not going to dive into all that. Um, So that is the backdrop of the ancient city of Corinth, its people, and why Paul wrote these letters. All right, so let's dive into Scripture. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 3. Verses 7 through 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, it should be page 1053. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7. Paul says, Now if the ministry... That brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? You might be sitting there thinking, what? What is Paul talking about? Well, what he's talking about is the greatest news that we could possibly ever imagine, okay? Look at how many times that he uses the words glory and glorious just in these five verses. Try to count. How many times he uses the word glory and glorious in just five verses? Ten different times. Ten different times he uses these powerful words to describe what he's trying to communicate. So in other words, this is monumental for us to grasp and understand people, okay? It is glorious news. And what Paul is talking about here is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the specific example he's giving here is the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments, okay? For those of you that, if you remember the story, God called Moses to go up to the top of Mount Sinai, right? This was thousands of years ago. He said, bring two tablets of stone with you. So Moses went alone on top of Mount Sinai, and he spent 40 days alone in the presence of God. And God told Moses that he was making a covenant between himself and the Israelites. So after 40 days, Moses came down from the mountain beaming. His face was literally beaming from spending that much time in the presence of God. People couldn't even look upon his face because the glory of God shone so brightly. And when he came down from that mountain, in his hands contained the two tablets, which we now know to be the Ten Commandments. And in this old covenant, The binding agreement between God and the ancient Israelites, God promised the Israelites his protection and his benefits. And in return, the Israelites were to be obedient to his law, to be obedient to his commandments. Now, obedience to the law didn't save the Israelites. 
That's a question a lot of people wrestle with. They were saved through faith in God. But the law was really given to them as a way to set them apart. Okay? To set boundaries in their life so that there was a difference between the way that they lived compared to their wicked pagan neighbors. If the Israelites obeyed the commandments, then they received God's blessing and protection and provision. If they disobeyed, there was punishment for their sin and for their wrongdoing. And Scripture also teaches us in the book of Hebrews that there is no forgiveness. There cannot be forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And this is so far off from the way that we think it's hard to wrap our minds around but believers under the new covenant uh, under the sorry under the old covenant had to sacrifice innocent animals and the blood of those animals were an atonement or a covering of their sin can you imagine how heavy and burdensome that would be to live under that the weight of that i kind of joke to myself i'm like dude if i had to slay an animal Every time I sinned, I'd be slaying those things every five minutes. Like, I would single-handedly wipe out the animal kingdom myself, <laughs> let alone the 500 other million people, right? There would be no more, no more animals. The Old Covenant, though, was never intended to be permanent, okay? That was never God's permanent plan. It simply revealed that mankind could not be righteous apart from God. And it revealed how desperately that we needed a Savior. So now let's transition. There's some old, there's some more Bible history. Now let's transition to our reality. With the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, all of his followers, including us, now live under the new covenant, okay? And the new covenant changes everything. And that's why Paul calls this so glorious, so check this out. Under the new covenant, we don't have to shed the blood of innocent animals to be forgiven of our sins. Because every sin that we have ever committed or will ever commit has already been covered by the blood of Christ. We aren't burdened by the commandments. Because Christ is now our mediator between us and God the Father. We are freely accepted into God's family we are one with Christ, and when Christ, when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our wicked, sinful hearts. Instead, he sees the glory of Christ, because he resides within us. And this is so mind-blowing, that those of us under the new covenant who have put our faith in Christ, the spirit of Jesus literally lives inside of our hearts. Like, do you guys get that? That is insane, Okay. That is the greatest miracle of all time. That the spirit of the living God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now resides within us. Okay? That is the greatest miracle ever. Under the new covenant, we are a new creation. Completely forgiven, redeemed, and saved by the grace of Christ. Now, Here's a great quote I came across from um, John Eldridge. He had this to say about the New Covenant. He said, Most Christians are still living with an Old Testament view of their heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, My heart is deceitfully wicked. No, it's not. 
not after the work of Christ, because the promise of the new covenant is a new heart. Now, this is fascinating. Are we as believers under the new covenant still sinners? Yeah, of course. I sin every day. But at the core of who we are, listen to this, at the core of who we are resides the Spirit of Christ. And so the task for us is to tap into that reality of knowing the fullness and understanding what it means to actually have Jesus living inside of us. And because we so often fail to grasp that and understand the implications of that truth, that's why many of us result in living with an Old Testament view of our hearts. So here's what that looks like a little bit in my life. If you, in many ways, if you think about the Old Testament, the, the Old Covenant, it was really an attempt kind of to get to God through our own effort, through our own flesh. And we, a lot of us, we want the rules because it helps us feel like we know what we're aiming for a little bit. Helps us feel like we know what we're striving for. For me, it gives me a sense that I, I'm kind of in control and that I can affect the way my life plays out or the way my circumstances unfold. But for me, when I fail, when I fail to live in the way that I know God wants, my default, default mode goes to thinking, okay, now I got to do X, Y, and Z. I got to do the right things. I got to pray more, give more, serve more. I got to stop committing this sin Stop committing this sin, and then God will be happy with me. And then God will love me, and then God the Father will look at me with a smile on his face, rather than a smile, rather than looking at me in shame and disgust. And that is a complete lie. Anybody else kind of relate to that way of thinking? If you do the right things, then you'll be blessed? Okay, good. Thank you, Sam. Yes. Living that way is exhausting. It is heavy and it is burdensome just like the old covenant was. That's why in the new covenant, it's sometimes referred to as it feels like slavery. There are 613 Old Testament laws. 613 laws that the Israelites had to obey. Doesn't that sound horrible? If that doesn't sound overwhelming... I'm not sure what does. And I think for many of us, myself included, this is a kicker, a relationship with the Savior, like we have under the New Covenant, a relationship with the Savior seems more intimidating than simply obeying the rules. That can feel more intimidating somehow. It's not as cut and dry. Jesus doesn't give us 613 commandments. He just says, follow me. Follow me. Come, come to me. Taste and see that I'm good. It is from my life and presence that you'll be set free and forgiven so that you can live the abundant life that only I can offer. And I hope, I hope a little bit today you guys are starting to understand how good we have it, okay? As believers that live under the new covenant. We are a lot like Paul's original audience when he wrote to Corinth. Um, they had very little connection with what the old covenant was like. 
what it was like to live under that. And so he's trying to get his audience in this passage to understand, and he's trying to get us to understand how good we have it as believers who now live under the new covenant. If you still have your Bibles out, let's read verses 9 through 11 again. 2 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11. Paul says, If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So I'm going to try to bring this home in a way that helps us understand the magnitude of this passage. This is a watershed passage in Scripture. As I was doing my studying, like a lot of pastors and scholars were saying, like, we have got to grasp this. Like, this chapter is monumental in connecting the Old Testament and the New and understanding the implications of us Christians now living under the New Covenant. He says, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And a few chapters later in this message, in this um, book, uh, Paul has this to say, if you have that slide. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we become the righteousness of God because Christ is righteous, and we are now one with him. And what is true of him is true of us. Okay, when we did the I am statements, Jesus said what? I am the light of the world. And before he left, he looked at us and said, you are the light of the world. What's true of him is true of us. The implications of this new covenant cannot be overstated. I put together a list that we're going to show you guys here in a minute of five Five tremendous blessings that we get to receive as believers who live under the new covenant. There's probably 50 other things I could have put up there, but for the sake of time, I just wrote down the top five that came to mind, okay? So check this out. This is what we get to freely accept and partake in as people under the new covenant. Number one, with Jesus living in us, we now have a oneness with Christ that can never be taken away. Two, our salvation and eternal destiny are both completely secure in Christ. Three, because of our unity with Christ and his free acceptance of us, there is no more need for striving. There's nothing we can do that will make us earn God's grace. It's a free gift for us to accept and celebrate. Four, there's no need for us to shed the blood of innocent animals so that we might be forgiven. Every sin that we have ever or will ever commit has already been covered by the blood of Christ. And five, we no longer are burdened by the weight of having to obey 613 commandments. But rather, our Savior now says to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Guys, if you claim to be a Christian and reading those truths doesn't fill your heart with joy, I'm not sure you fully understand the good news of Jesus. I'm not sure you completely grasp it. That should make our hearts overflow 
with gratitude for what we've been given, okay? So I want to open the floor up and give us a chance to praise God. Okay, so keep that up there for a minute. What stirs in your heart as you read those truths up there? Remember, that's just five. There's 50 other things I could have put up there. What resonates within you about the glory of the new covenant that we get to partake in? What is your response to that? The floor is open. I'd love to hear just from maybe a few people of how you respond to what we have been given, and we've done nothing to deserve it. So the floor is open. Yeah, Brad. Yeah. 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 He's saying he can rest. Yeah. Rest in just knowing that all his sins are covered and forgiven. Yeah. Beautiful. Yes, Brooke. Yeah, she's saying this demolishes any shame that we can feel that we're not good enough or that we can't achieve enough. Yeah, or it's a level playing field. Good. Yes, Justin. Yeah, he's saying he's forever grateful to know that he can go to bed at night and know that his soul and eternal destiny is completely secure and there's no fear of losing his salvation. Good. One more, maybe? Yes. Sorry. Steve. What's that? Yeah, yeah, a lot less animals to be slayed. Yeah, good. Anybody else? <laughs> Guys, the new covenant, yeah, Todd, you can take that down. The new covenant is glorious because of the life and work of Christ. And it should fill our hearts every single day with gratitude that leads to obedience because of the goodness that we have experienced in him. Guys, this was a deep message, Whew, okay? I'm fully aware of that. We talked about some heavy stuff before my sermon. Then I gave you guys like a New Testament history course. Then I examined the Old Testament law and compared that to the New Covenant. Thank you for hanging in there with me. That was deep stuff. And my desire, you know, most of you are going to forget 90% of what I said 
in a week or two, and that's fine. If you're only going to remember one thing, here's the one thing I want you to take away from this. I hope you realize now how good you have it. I hope you realize how good you have it. And that you don't need anything more from God to be overjoyed and satisfied. You have been given far more than you deserve and far more that you could ever possibly even dreamed of or imagined. And so I hope today fills you with gratitude. And I hope that gratitude leads you to obedience. And as we come to um, take communion this morning, we have an opportunity to be filled with gratitude and to give thanks, to extend our thanksgiving to him. So as you come forward and you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the juice, which represents Christ's blood, remember that you've done nothing to, nothing to deserve that forgiveness. And yet all of your sins have been covered forever by the blood of Christ. Receive his forgiveness today with a grateful heart. I'm going to pray for us, and then the ushers, after a moment of silence, will come dismiss you. You can come forward and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice. And we also have a um, gluten-free option if you need that as well. All right, let's pray together.